If you would please, would you open in the Bible this morning to Acts chapter 11, verses 19 to 24, which you'll find on page 920 in the Pew Bible. You'll also find it in the bulletin, the program. Look it up in either place, look it up online, whatever you'd like to do. But please do look it up because I'd like you to have it in front of you. I'd like to show you that the things we're looking at, the things we're learning about today uh, did not originate with me or with some fancy uh, program somewhere, but actually originated in the pages of the scriptures. And I'd like for us to think about what God is saying, not only about what he did in Acts chapter 11, but what he is still doing and which you and I get to be a part of. So with uh, Acts chapter 11, beginning at verse 19, please stand. Hear God's word to us. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. The word of the Lord. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you be pleased to send your spirit now upon us. The same spirit that moved your servant Luke to record these words the same spirit that moved your people to plant a church in Antioch long, long ago, that that same spirit would be powerfully at work in us. Open our ears, we pray, Father, that we might hear your word, believe it, obey it, and rejoice in it. For Jesus' sake, amen. Please be seated. Do please keep the Bible open. Uh, to this passage, you'll find an outline towards the back of the bulletin, including a handy little map. I want to let you know that I've been thinking a lot on uh, the subject of church planting. In fact, I, I jokingly called it having church planting on the brain. It seems like it's been something that uh, is very much on my mind, something I'm thinking a lot about. I've been thinking a lot about, a lot about it for several months, several weeks, especially um, I'll share, share with you a few of the reasons why that is. Uh, we, as you know, and I just referenced, are celebrating our anniversary. And uh, it, it's an exciting thing to look back over uh, all the different things God has done in the life of our church. And uh, it's, it's a fact that Metrocrest Presbyterian Church is a church plant. And uh, that's significant. Uh, it should shape the way we think about a lot of different things, that, that we are a church plant, very specifically planted. We were planted by Town North 
Presbyterian Church. Over in Richardson, they uh, had a vision uh, for planting a church, and we are the fruit of that vision. Uh, Metropress has some amazing records, and uh, every year around this time, I pull out the records, and every year I, I find some new treasure. And this year, as I was looking through these files, I found a document here. It's called a Summary of Informational Meeting on Planting a Metrocrest Church. February the 28th, 1988. This is uh, a year before, in fact, a year and a half before our church was started. Uh, the pastor opened the meeting with a prayer. His introductory remarks recalled the history of the discussion of a church in the Metrocrest area. So in February of 1988, a year and a half before our church actually started, there was already a history of an ongoing discussion that some Christians on the other side of Dallas had been having about planting a church here. And so they were having an informational meeting for members of the congregation there at Town North to get together. He reported, he says, this is reading from the report, that the session, after much prayer, deliberation, and planning, had unanimously decided that this year, 1988, was the time to begin that church plant. They'd been thinking about it, discussing it, deliberating it, praying about it. And that year, they had unanimously decided that that was the year to begin planting our little church. The last paragraph, sorry, the last sentence of that paragraph says, the pastor expressed his personal conviction that God is leading us to start a Metrocrest church at this time. February 28, 1988. Our little church began as a church plant. We began as a vision someone had for reaching a different part of the community that they didn't live in, but they had a vision for, they, they cared about. And so they uh, began in earnest a plan that bore fruit in October of 1989 when over a year later, after that informational meeting and probably other informational meetings, they gathered on the Lord's Day for the very first worship service. And in fact, if you look on the cover of today's program, you will see an invitation that was sent out by the church planters. I'm told it went to over 1,700 people uh, based on the mailing list and a phone calling campaign that they had had, and 190 people showed up, I'm told, for that very first service. Almost 200 people showed up for that first service on October the 8th, 1989. I was not there. In fact, is Cherry Leslie here today? No. I don't think any of us in this room were there. I, I think Kathleen Barclay showed up a day or two later. Is that right? Second Sunday. Kathleen showed up on the second Sunday, um, but on that very first Sunday, 190 people were able to come together and to see the beginning of the fruit of this vision of planting a church. I mean, I, I can only imagine sitting here now, 33 years later, they could never have dreamed all the things that God would do, all the experiences this little church would have. Over decades, a third of a century, 
God at work among us. So, church planting's been on my brain. Uh, I've also been thinking about church planting because uh, in just a few weeks, uh, in November, we're going to have the opportunity to fellowship and celebrate with our friends over at Town North Presbyterian Church, our mother church, as they celebrate their 50th year. Someone had planted that church. By the way, uh, Town North is older than the PCA. Town North was founded before there was a PCA. Presbyterians talking, Reformed Christians talking, but before there was a PCA, there was a Town North. And we're going to be able to celebrate their 50th anniversary in just a, a few weeks. And then, of course, the other reason church planning has been on my mind is because for, what is it, uh, 16 Sundays, we have been reading together the letter of Paul to the Ephesians. Well, guess what the church in Ephesus was? It was a church plant. In fact, it was a, plant, a church that had been planted by the Apostle Paul. And he wrote this church that he dearly loved, that he had pastored, that he had helped launch this church. And so in love for them, as their church planter, as the one who had shepherded them along and introduced them to the life of the gospel, um, that little church plant received that letter which we spent uh, months studying. So church planting has been on my brain. It's been on my brain a lot, and I'd like for us to think a little bit about church planting over the next few Sundays. Because you see, the, the, the last reason church planning has been on my, my, my brain, chronologically that is, not the least important, uh, but it is chronologically the last one I'm going to describe to you today, is because Metrocrest is involved in a church plant. Every church plant's different, every situation's unique, but Metrocrest is involved in planting a church. And this is really important for you to know. This is something we are part of. And Colin and Sarah Day are in the process of discerning exactly what that's going to look like and the shape it will take. They are thinking and praying about what God's calling them to do. They've, they've got some preliminary ideas. Uh, they've made some decisions, but they're making lots of other decisions. And they're going to be looking for friends and supporters and others who want to be a part of that. And I just want you to know I support that. I support that. This is something that involves our whole church. And what I'd really like to do for the next few weeks is, is pull this idea of church planting right out onto the table and let's think about it, pray about it, discuss it, deliberate about it, and pray that God will do what God does as he plants yet another church and we get to be a part of it. Now, uh, if you look at the passage that I read for us a moment ago, uh, Acts chapter 11, beginning at verse 19, um, I want to just draw your attention to the fact that this is probably the unlikeliest church plant that uh, we read about in the New Testament. It is the most unusual, the unlikeliest church plant. And I want to highlight just a few of the reasons why in verse 19, what we're about to read about is so unlikely. Number one, it was the first. 
There's the first. There was the mother church in Jerusalem. But Antioch is the first church that we read about where Christians planted a church. The church was expanding and Christians planted a church. So one of the ways it's unlikely was nobody had ever done this before. No one had ever planted a church before. It was extremely unlikely for that reason. But there were other reasons it was unlikely. Not only was it unlikely because it was the first one, look at the description of the context in which they planted this first church. Verse 19, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen... Now pause. All right? When you're planting a church, you look for the exact right time to plant a church, right? Isn't that what they all tell us? Uh, Colin's been to some church planting seminars... I guarantee you they say you look for the the place and the time that's right for a church plant. And that usually means it's booming. Things are good. It's growing. I got to tell you, looking back through our minutes, one of the things they said about Metrocrest was our neighborhood was growing. It was growing 33 years ago. It is still growing. And one of the things they, they looked and they saw, this is a booming area. This is a place that can support a church. And that was a a good check mark. Any church planter would tell you, look for a place where it can sustain the growth. Look for the the right time, the right setting. Let's check those things off because you want to plant it in in an environment where it's likely to succeed, right? That's just sort of common sense in a way. But notice they didn't do that. (laughs) They were actually scared scattered because of persecution. They weren't sitting in a boardroom somewhere looking at statistics and diagrams and and, uh, figuring out where's the most likely place for a church to take root. They were scattered. The the word in Greek, Matt, you may not know this, Uh, Colton Huckabee and I have become Greek scholars. Um, I've had six weeks of Greek. And if you look at the Greek translation of the word for scattered, and it's, we, we've been printing the Greek translation lately, and if you look at the one, two, three, fourth word, it's the word from which we get diaspora. The same word used to describe the scattering of the Jews by the Babylonians and the Assyrians, that diaspora. Well, this was a Christian diaspora. This was a time in which the church, the Christians in Jerusalem, the Christians across the Roman Empire, were being scattered. It was a time of of weakness. It was a time of vulnerability. And they were being scattered, it says, because of persecution. It wasn't persecution in some vague sense. It was persecution that arose over a specific act of persecution. And it wasn't that someone had a hard time or someone was unkind to them or they had a difficult time finding a job. It was a a persecution that arose over the killing of a man named Stephen, who was the first Christian martyr. So what an unlikely church plant, (laughs) Uh, If we took that to the church planting gurus, they'd likely say, well, I'm not sure that's a good idea. Planting a church 
in a time of diaspora. Oh, by the way, earlier in the book of Acts, we find out there's also an economic depression. There's a famine going on. So it was persecution, it was hardship, it was a famine, it was economic difficulties. Any sensible church planner advisor would say, well, let's be, let's think again about that. That's unlikely. But it doesn't stop there. Because not only was it such an unlikely location and such an unlikely situation, uh, notice what else it says. It says, uh, it traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. Now those are just names to us. But if you look at the little map, you'll notice Phoenicia is in the bottom part of the map. And look up over and slightly to the left, you'll see Cyprus. That's an island off the coast of uh, the area here, Phoenicia and Syria. I look a little further up and you'll see Antioch. Antioch was uh, at that time part of a Roman province called Syria. Uh, Syria is a country to this day and Syria exists. There's Jordan, there's Syria. This area of the world is still very much a place. You can visit these places. You can see the ruins of these cities. They're still there. Antioch is now part of Turkey. It was originally at that time part of Syria. But Antioch is still there. You can go visit. Unlikely trajectory. Moving north from north and, and eventually west as the gospel spread from Jerusalem. And it went further and further. These concentric circles that are described in the book of Acts at the beginning of the first chapter. This growth of the gospel. Well, it says that as it went, they were speaking the word to no one except Jews. That's, that's a very interesting form, formulation. Uh, it was going forward. They were sharing the gospel. Uh, this this, uh, this uh, message, this word, but they were sharing it with no one except Jewish people. Uh, because they saw it basically as a message for Jewish people. Chosen people, the covenant people. That's the way the Jewish people understood their religion. And so, because they were coming from this background, that was initially what they did. All the way up until this point, Luke says that this gospel is being spread, at least by this part of the concentric circle, to no one except Jewish people. Um, but look what happens in verse 20. In verse 20, the unlikeliest church plant reveals the unlikeliest church plant strategy. It says in verse 20, there were some of them among those who were taking the gospel. Men of Cyprus and Cyrene. Let's, again, those are just names from a Bible study or Bible Sunday school lesson for most of us. Uh, Cyprus and Cyrene are also still places you can go visit. Cyprus is a place, it's an island, still there in the Mediterranean, beautiful resort, that place these days. You know where Cyrene is? Cyrene is in Libya, in northern Africa, way over here, far to the west. It's a very important Roman city, part of the empire of which Antioch was a part. And apparently... 
people from Cyprus and way over in Cyrene. We bumped into Cyrene before, haven't we? The man who carried the cross for Jesus was from Cyrene. An African carried the cross for Jesus. He's going to show up again. That location, Cyrene, is going to show up again. Well, anyway, there were people among them uh, from Cyprus and Cyrene who, on coming to Antioch, well, they did something unusual. See, up until this point, they've been talking to Jews only. But it says here they, they spoke to the Hellenists also. The way they're wording it, 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 it makes it sound as though it's, it's more than simply Greek-speaking Jews. But it was actually Hellenists. This, this was people who embraced Hellenism, who embraced this culture, who very likely spoke Greek. They took this message to these Hellenists in Antioch and they preached to them the Lord Jesus. Let's let's just break this strategy apart, okay? You go to the unlikeliest place you can find at the unlikeliest time you can find it and you send nameless people. We're not told a thing about these people except they were from a place. They weren't even going back to the place where they were from. They were exiles. They were, they were possibly refugees. They were, they were immigrants. They had left the places they were from, and they had found themselves in Antioch. The church plant in Antioch was founded by immigrants. And they went there to Antioch, and they, they began, it says, preaching the Lord Jesus. Now... <laughs> I've not been to a church planting seminar. I've, plant, I've helped plant a church. I've never been to a full-on church planting program where they teach you all the books and all the things you're supposed to do. When we planted Christ Church Garland, we broke every rule imaginable. Well, the church in Antioch broke even more rules. Their only strategy, apparently, was to go and tell people about Jesus. They didn't have a marketing strategy. They didn't have an advertising budget. They didn't have a way of using social media to get the message out. In this, in this ancient environment, all they did, all they aimed to do, was to go and preach Jesus. I love your story, Matt about sharing the story of the resurrection with someone who's never really thought about it, maybe never even heard of it. So, see, in our ears, we get so used to these things. and we, Bible names, Bible ideas, it, it loses some of its punch. But as they went to Antioch and they shared the good news of Jesus, God used it. And they planted a church. Now, I'm not not against using strategies and marketing and technology. I'm not against using those things. I don't think there's anything in the Bible that is against those things in themselves. Uh, If you look at our big file of our church being planted, it's it's a file that thick. And half of it is copies of ads and mailers and things they used to get the word out. There was nothing wrong with doing that. 
But at the heart of it, the strategy at Antioch should be the strategy for every church plant. Because at the bottom, at the core, at the heart, the core of church planting as it's described in the Bible is telling people about Jesus. And brothers and sisters, when we tell people about Jesus with humble hearts, with the personality type we have, whatever it may be, God uses it. The simple message of Jesus still has transforming power. It still connects with people's deepest longings. So they had a very, very unlikely church plan. It would have, if you'd presented this plan to the church planning gurus, they would not have been very impressed. Well, we're going to go there and tell people about Jesus. Really? That's your strategy? Yes, it is. Wouldn't have been very convincing. It wouldn't have been very exciting. But this was the unlikeliest church plant strategy in the world and the most biblically faithful church planting strategy in the world. Just to recognize at the heart, at the core, it's about telling people about Jesus. It's not our strategies. It's not our things that we think are cool and interesting. It's not trying to use techniques to sneak up on people and It's telling people about Jesus. Unlikely then and very, very unlikely now. So, unlikeliest church plant strategy. Now, part of this strategy includes the unlikeliest church planter. You know, uh, every denomination, uh, PCA, EPC, every church that's involved in church planting spends a lot of time on identifying, recruiting, training church planters. And I, again, I'm not against any of that. I think it's a good idea. It's wisdom. I'm all for it. But the church in Antioch broke that rule in significant ways. Or I'll put it this way. They did it very differently. And I think we can learn from the way they did it. I'm not against strategies. I'm not against training. I'm not against recruiting. All those things have a good place. They're part of wisdom. But there's something deeper and more important that I think we're going to see here in Antioch. This unlikely church plan. And I guess I could just ask you, you know, a few verses into this, who was the church planter in Antioch? Well, it's tempting to say the church planter was the church in Jerusalem. But actually, it wasn't the Christians from the church in Jerusalem who planted the church in Antioch people from a different place. So it wasn't the church in Jerusalem exactly. It's tempting to say it was Barnabas. You know, Barnabas is one of my favorite New Testament characters. I love reading about Barnabas. I resonate with Barnabas. I would like to be Barnabas when I grow up. I think Barnabas is a really, really wonderful character for Christian leaders to look to. He shows up several times. The first place he shows up, by the way, is over in Acts chapter 4. In verse 36, it says, Joseph, who is also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. I'd like to think with you about stewardship soon. I'd I'd like for us to look at 
the role of stewardship in the Christian life because Barnabas is a great example. He was an example of what the Lord was doing in his church at the very beginning. And so Barnabas is a very attractive character to me. He's, he's someone that is um, not exactly on the top tier, but he's, he's, he's in that, that, near that end of the spectrum. So it'd be tempting to say Barnabas was the church planner, but he's not. He's, he's manifestly not the church planner. In fact, the church in Jerusalem, we see, sent him uh, to go and to investigate what was happening in Antioch. Uh, it says the, uh, when the news came to, uh, to the church in Jerusalem, they, they sent Barnabas to check it out. So he traveled up there to see what was going on. So he was an observer. He was not the church planter. May have gone on to play a role in the continued growth and expansion, but he was not the church planter. Uh, of course, whenever you read about church planting, it's tempting to think of Paul. And actually, Paul has a very significant role to play in this unlikely church plant. We're going to read about him as we go through the rest of what Acts teaches us. Paul had a very significant role to play. But he manifestly was not the church planter. He wasn't even the, the, the first person to observe it. He was summoned, and we'll see this in the next Sunday, he was summoned by the first observer that we read about uh, to come and, and to see and be a part of what was happening there. So it was not... Barnabas. It was not Paul. Of course, it's tempting to say that it was these unnamed people, and and uh, we'll think about that in a minute, um, because they really had this, humanly speaking, this role to play that is very much like a church planter. There wasn't one; there was a whole group of them. So they're unlikely, they're a nameless bunch of people known only to the Lord, not even recorded here us to remember them. They were just Christians who loved Jesus and came to Antioch, immigrants, and they taught about Jesus. So humanly speaking, uh, they are, I guess you could say, in that specific, as close as you can get to a church planter, it was, it was these people who went there with a vision. Humanly speaking, they had a very important role to play. But I want to suggest that the unlikeliest church planter that we actually meet here in Antioch isn't a human at all. The unlikely church planter who planted the church in Antioch through people was actually identified in verse 23. And it's recorded for us. We, we know exactly who the church planter was because Barnabas observes it. When Barnabas came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. See, Barnabas saw who had planted the church through these nameless immigrants. Barnabas knew that it was the gracious God of the covenant, the gracious God of the Old Testament, the gracious God of the Lord Jesus Christ who was being displayed in this first church plant. It is worth noting that the very first church plant was planted by God. It was God 
who brought this ragtag bunch of people together, gave them this idea of sharing the gospel with non-Jews, people that Jews looked down on as scum and barbarians. They themselves were immigrants. Maybe they had a soft spot for barbarians because they went there and God moved them to share the gospel. And people, well, if you look down at verse 24, it says it again. A great many people were added to the Lord. Supernaturally, he was bringing people to himself. Working through these very ordinary people. They weren't super talented. They, they weren't famous names. They, they weren't people that lined up for, that other people would line up to hear. They were nameless people, immigrants, probably business people, sharing their faith. And God chose to work through them. And Barnabas rightly praised God for the grace that had made that happen. And every church plant, ours, Town North, Collins, any church plant at the bottom is a work of the sovereign God. The unlikeliest church planter of all. Uh, Unlikely because we don't understand God very much. Unlikely because we don't really expect God to do stuff like that anymore. Unlikely because... We are so human-centered and so experience-centered and so centered on our our sensations and our, our own personal experience that we forget there's a sovereign God who reigns over it all. I wasn't at uh, the adult Sunday school today, but I talked to Will before and after, and I know in the adult Sunday school class today, they were actually talking about God's sovereign purposes, how God mysteriously, wonderfully works for good in all kinds of extraordinary ways and how he's um, always light years ahead of us, lining things up, preparing things, opening doors so that when the gospel is presented, so that when the message of Jesus is presented, there will be some timid soul, broken, in need, who says, yes, This resurrection makes a difference for me. That's what God does. He's the great church planter. He's the great evangelist. Of course he's the great church planter because he's the great evangelist. One of the treasures of the Presbyterian church and one of our distinctives is we have a deep commitment to this idea that God really is God and he really is working for good and he's a he's all about protecting his people and directing his people and showering his love upon his people and we don't have to guess about the end of the story we may not see every little piece but he's told us where it's all headed he's told us his purpose and you can actually open your Bible and read about it in the book of Revelation which is not a book that's meant to terrify us it's meant to encourage us And give us hope and confidence in the full assurance that God is working for good. God has a sovereign purpose. And the church in Antioch, this 
baby church plant experiences that. The sovereign work of a sovereign God. The unlikeliest church planter. I do want to point out one other thing, however. Because, as we know, generally speaking, God uses human agents. Uh, Will and I were talking about secondary causes. Uh, A primary cause is you've got a pool table. Here's the ball. The really good pool player will hit the ball. It goes in the corner pocket. A better-than-average pool player has got two balls. He'll hit one ball. It hits the other ball. It goes in in the corner pocket. God is a God who hits one ball and it has infinite bouncing off other things. Infinite agents at work. Sinful agents. Righteous agents. Agents today. Agents a thousand years ago. Agents a hundred years ago. And all of this together takes the ball directly in the corner pocket exactly where God wanted it to go all along using all these human agents. Some sinful, some covenant people, sinners who look to Him with hope, uses it all to accomplish His purposes. But generally speaking, all these human agents have a little role to play, right? I want to suggest to you there's, a, there's another unlikely church planter in this story. And it's actually... A name we skipped right over. If you look back up at verse 19 again. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. A man who died, who was stoned to death. Years later. Was part of a sovereign plan that only God could conceive. God used the death of a righteous man who knew and loved Jesus and in love told his countrymen about Jesus. They got mad at him and they killed him. When he died... If his mother was somewhere in the crowd or people who knew and cared about Stephen were in the crowd, they might very likely be forgiven for thinking. Stephen died for nothing. This little startup movement, everybody's mad at him. He was a deacon. This death seems an example of the terrible reality of life in a sinful and broken world. He certainly was not seen at the time as an example of a great success story. But as it turns out, it was actually Stephen and his heroic, faithful witness to Jesus that resulted in his death that set in motion all the different pieces all across the pool table. And Stephen, in a very real sense, by preaching the gospel in Jerusalem, 
hundreds of miles away, was part of a church plant team in Antioch Church. Long dead, but he was part of the team around the sovereign God whom the sovereign God used to plant the first church plant. And now, 2,000 years later, we're part of that little ongoing process, that ongoing sovereign work of God, working through humans, working through processes, and working in spite of processes to accomplish His purposes which always include this mission of the church, a mission entrusted to the church. See, the church isn't just an institution. I guess if you look it up, we have institutional-like characteristics. But the church is a mission. The church is a manifestation of the work of the sovereign God in the world today. And you go to where Matt Richardson lives and works, under very difficult circumstances. And guess what? God's at work there. God's at work seeing His ancient Word translated into yet another modern language so that more people will hear the good news of Jesus, the Word of Jesus. And here in Carrollton, in the Metrocrest neighborhoods, you and I are part of it. Now, let me give you just a couple of words of Application. I think that should, number one, deeply inspire us. It should fill us with courage and hopefulness and confidence that what we aim to do when we plant a church is something God is doing. That should give us courage. It should make us be willing to take risks. It is a risky thing to plant a church. We're a small church now. When I contemplate our not very big church planting another church, even in a support role, I got to tell you, I am sinful enough to, to be aware of the challenge, aware of the risk. So let's not pretend as though there aren't risks in this. There are risks in it. It's risky for everybody involved. So it should give us courage and hope. It should also humble us. It's, it's not about us and our plans. You know, the, the worldly church can become so focused on money and all the things that the world thinks is important. Got to buy a giant lot. You got to have X numbers of hundreds of thousand dollars in the bank. You got to have X number of people and got to have all this training and you got to have a detailed 55 page plan. And if you don't have those things, forget it. Well, let's be humble. Let's be humble. Let's recognize that the great church planter is not the PCA. It's not the EPC. It's not you or me. It's not Metrocrest. It's not Town North. The great church planter is the Lord himself. He is committed to the work. And in hopefulness and confidence, we can humbly follow behind him. We can humbly work confidently aware of his sovereign purposes. So it will inspire and encourage us. It will also humble us. I guess the the last thing I want to just underscore as we close is it will stir us to do it. 
It will stir us to, because we're humble, because we're confident, it will actually stir us to do it. I was looking back at the philosophy of ministry document for Metrocrest Presbyterian Church. I think it was from 1990. The first session spent some time putting together a, a proposal, a philosophy of ministry. And one of the items in our philosophy of ministry 30 years ago was Metrocrest will be a church planting church. Isn't that interesting? 30 years ago, Metrocrest will be a church planting church. God's led us through all kinds of crazy things, all kinds of difficult experiences. Sinful men have had their role to play. Broken, sinful people have had their role to play. But God never took his eyes off the work that was entrusted to the likes of us. And it's just possible that by the time of our 34th or maybe our 35th anniversary, our little church will have been a part of planting another little church. And that little church will have a part to play in planting another and another and another until Jesus returns. That's how he works. That's what he's doing. And we can enter into that and are really called to enter into that with all of our hearts.